Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas on how to lead your church into the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Now, here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. This is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm welcoming you to another episode hosted by Martha Tatarnik, featuring guest Justin Anthony. Justin is rector of Chingford Parish and was until recently the deputy director of the Anglican Center in Rome. He has worked in Alexandria, Virginia as dean of students at a theological college, Canterbury as rector of a parish in the city, Oxford as precentor of Christ Church Cathedral, and Saracester as curate and team vicar in the parish. He was born in Singapore and educated there, in Germany, North Yorkshire, the London School of Economics, and Oxford. He has written three books as a sole author and contributed to others on issues of church life, ministry, and culture. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I'm your guest host today, Martha Tatarnik. And today we have a cross-Atlantic conversation with the Reverend Dr. Justin Anthony. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you, Martha. It's exciting to have this time to talk with you across the pond. Thank you. That's great. Okay, can you just give us a little rundown about uh, about yourself? <laughs> Share a little bit about who you are. Um, I'm I'm the rarest creature that you could possibly uh, imagine. I am a Singaporean Welsh Yorkshireman who has wow. uh, lived in Singapore, Germany, Canada, the United States, and Italy. Um, a big chunk of that time, I've been involved in church life in the Anglican Communion. So I was baptized in St. George's Tanglin in Singapore. My parents were there um, the last days of the empire and uh, lived in Germany, uh, surrounded by the British Army. Um, didn't live in England until I was 12. Um, but oh that doesn't stop me from being a proud Yorkshireman when it comes to cricket and a proud Welshman when it comes to rugby. These are the important things. <laughs> These are the important things to note about you. Okay, mm -hmm. that sounds pretty good. Um, what, uh, what do you think it has meant to be a Christian in the past? And how might that be? different from what it means to be a Christian today? Well, my first degree and my first love was history. My father was a, a high school mm. history teacher. So I have always taken a historical point of view. Um, my, my attitude is that at seminary, I think that we ought to teach people church history before we teach them um, biblical studies, because when we give them people's skills in history, then we'll will overcome this sort of all the the doubts about the historical veracity of the Gospels. Um, so right. my point of view about what it means to be a Christian in the past is exactly the same as it, uh, as being a Christian today. Um, Terry Eagleton, who is an interesting character, he's a, uh, a literary critic, 
an atheist and a Marxist, but heavily influenced, heavily influenced by a teacher of his when he was a young man who was a, uh, a Dominican friar. Eagleton said that the Christian gospel invites us to contemplate the reality of human existence in the body of an executed political criminal. Uh, and he derives that from Herbert McCabe, the Dominican's uh, aphorism that um, if you don't love, you're dead. And if you do love, they'll kill you. And that's always <sighs> been true for being a Christian in the past. Um, and it's especially true of being a Christian now. We in the West, in England, in Canada, in the United States, live in a society of enormous comfort um, yeah. relative to history and relative to our brother and sister Christians today. The, the, the number of Christians who've been martyred for their faith in the 20th and the 21st century outnumbers the combined total of Christians who were martyred for their faith in the first 19 centuries. Oh, um, my gosh. When I worked in Rome, I was part of a um, – every year there was a, a, a service of commemoration of the Christian martyrs of the previous year alone, uh, organized by the uh, Sant'Ingidio community. And we would gather into a basilica, and we would listen to the names of those who had been killed for their faith in the previous year, and they – numbered in the uh, in the hundreds. Um, yeah. So I think that's it. You know, the, the, the challenge for those of us who are living in the, in the comfortable and complacent West is to realize that being a Christian is or ought to be a dangerous thing. I mean, that is quite a startling frame mm. on the numbers. And, and you're right. Like, we just really have no idea in the West. I think no. that we take the ability to practice our faith in peace completely for granted. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that is quite remarkable. We only uh, think that being disrespected is the equivalent of being martyred. Yeah, like not yeah. being able to put up our nativity scene at City Hall, that, that is yeah, yeah. similar, or, or and being, it's not. Or right? Rowan Atkinson. I mean, I just read a review now of the new Willy Wonka film, and Rowan Atkinson has a role in it, playing yet another bumbling clergyman. You know, so, oh my goodness, we are being persecuted because Rowan Atkinson is mocking us. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, we need to get some perspective. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, I, my background is in music history. That was right. my undergrad. And I feel like that served me incredibly well in terms of then going to seminary after because uh, – Music history in the West and the church history are so intertwined. entwined. Yeah. Um, maybe I can just like re reframe that question then a little bit. Like, have you noticed a shift in terms of what it means to lead a church over the course of, you know, the the years that you've been in? Yeah. So in pastoral ministry. As well as being Singaporean Yorkshire Welsh. I am another rare creature in another way in that I have been ordained 31 years in the Church of England, and I'm still only in my 50s, just, yeah. just still in my 50s. Um, in the late 80s and early 90s, it was incredibly rare for people to be ordained in their 20s because the, the culture of the church was go away and get some experience of the real world. So, yeah, same with us, yeah. for sure. So even now, it was my birthday yesterday, even now I'm only three years older than the median age of people who are being ordained. Um, and so, you know, what I see over, over the course of that is 
I mean, I'm going to dispute the premise of your question, is the fact that we can now ask the question about what it means to lead a church. Um, and right. that becomes the verb that we want to use um, more and more and more often. And I've seen that being introduced um, as, as just the basic understanding, the basic expectation of what it means to be a um, a, a, a priest. Let's yeah. know what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a minister. Um, yeah, yeah. Everything sure. in the the ordinal of the, the Church of England just collapses down into this idea of leadership. Um, and that's problematic because, first of all, we don't know what leadership means. And secondly, the culture that we operate in that uses the word leadership um, gets its meaning of the word leadership from all kinds of extremely dangerous places, so much so that I would say that leadership is actually a heretical idea. To go back to, I've disputed the premise of your question, sorry. But to go, to <laughs> well, go back to it. You're well, also kind of giving away the whole podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, 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 I'm, I'm teasing just, people. I'm just teasing hold people. some of those yeah. thoughts. <laughs> but to go back to you know how it's different is that um, the... I think one of the expectations in for clergy within the Church of England now is that we function as cultural and social facilitators. Um, it's a sort of distortion of the idea of being an enabler, uh, and, and mm -hmm. somehow the, you know being an enabler um, became the de rigueur word of the early part of my ministry is that we enable people and you know we're here to facilitate the uh the priesthood of all believers um we saw a good example of that in covid that when the government regulations were lifted and the government guidelines were lifted and the church of england's regulations and the church of england's guidelines were lifted all all four sources of restriction not necessarily coordinating but when they were lifted mm -hmm. the church of england sent out guidelines saying okay so you don't actually have to observe social distancing anymore and you are allowed to have communion you are allowed to have public worship but what you have to do is you have to take account of people's feelings about how they might coming back and I was extremely reluctant to take account of people's feelings because people's feelings are inchoate and incoherent and inaccessible to anybody else. Um, you know, mm. When somebody says, I feel this, there's no argument. You can't argue with mm -hmm. people's feelings as well. But one of the changes over the last 30 years is that more and more and more we are expected to, to facilitate people's greatest flourishing whilst not actually um engage not actually having people who, who are able to articulate what it is that they need to flourish as well so it's been this cultural um did you ever i don't know if if your listeners have ever seen the the old british sitcom of uh from the 70s called are you being served it's probably shown on pbs masterworks or something like yeah. that yeah so, so i mean i feel like i have seen glimpses okay of it, it's set but... in a uh, an old-fashioned department store grace brothers and all all the staff are having hijinks every week and at the end of each episode young mr grace who is about 90 years old staggers onto the uh, onto the set and tells everybody you're all doing very well and everybody goes thank you mr grace and that's the only time <laughs> you see him and i very often get the impression that what we're expecting of our clergy now is to function like young mr grace to come on at the end irrelevantly tell everybody that they're all doing very well 
And then um, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. Isn't this okay? Yeah. Aren't you marvelous? You're absolutely marvelous and perfect um, in every single possible way. Um, and more and more, the, the expectation is for us to function in that that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to dig into um, this whole concept about leadership mm -hmm. and uh, and how much that has become the dominant language mm -hmm. about talking about pastoral ministry. Just before we dig into that, um, is there a spiritual practice that is particularly meaningful for you these days? Yeah. Say your bloody prayers. Um, the the real advantage of being a priest of the Church of England, a sentence I never thought I would say again, is that we have a canonical obligation to say morning and evening prayer every day. Right. Uh, we actually have to do that. It's one, and that's one of the, the controversies about the Church's reaction to COVID was forbidding us from going into church to say our, um, our, our, the daily office, our canonical duty. And the sheer regularity of saying your prayers, words that have been written down by other people three and a half thousand years ago sometimes, and yeah. making them, not making them your own, but making yourself theirs um, is the only thing that, that keeps me going and sustains me. It's really boring. It's nothing shiny and sparkly. It's not one weird tip uh, that you get on some internet things, but it's actually you know the sheer regularity of saying the daily office along with countless other Christians throughout the world? Well, I will tell you, um, you know, we ask all of our guests this question, and we we interview guests from all different denominations. I would say that answer comes up with surprising frequency Brilliant. across different denominations that that practice of the daily office um, is centering and meaningful. Yeah. and. Um, so yeah, you're you're sharing that from uh, a tradition where, as you say, it's mandated. Mm -hmm. um, but it's amazing how many people do find their uh, their grounding there. Yeah, yeah, that's reassuring. Yeah, yeah, it's a definite gift of the Church of England mm. for sure. Okay, so today we are predominantly talking about your <laughs> latest book. Uh, you are the Messiah, and I should know why leadership is a myth and probably a heresy. Mm. So if that doesn't pack a punch, I don't know what does. Mm. You uh, you definitely, um, there's some clickbait in that title, Justin, oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so your book is, as you've hinted at, it's based on a very carefully constructed, but I would say also counterintuitive argument, which is that although we talk about leadership a lot, not just in the church, but in general, um, it's actually very poorly defined what it is that we're really talking about. Um, you know, is leadership something defined by what a person does, by who they are? Is it something that you learn? Is it something that you're born with? Um, Although we use the language a lot, there's a, there's very little clarity about mm -hmm. any of that. Mm -hmm. Now, I do have to say, like, this is a podcast that is um, pretty explicitly meant to equip church leadership. 
Cool. So your book is here. I am in the heart relevant. of darkness. <laughs> yeah, here you are in the heart of darkness. Um, this is a pretty relevant topic, and it's also a challenging topic. Mm. So, what do you see as being the problem with how we talk about leadership in general? Okay, like not specifically in the church, like general. Okay, in general, we don't know what it is. We don't know why it is. We think it's a good thing. Simple as that. So uh, I um I got into this because uh, uh, I I mean you say my latest book. I mean it's uh, more than ten years old now, uh, and okay. it came out as a um, as a result of my PhD. Um, so my PhD, P- the weird thing was is that I was writing the final manuscript for the book and had uh, to submit that before I had actually um, been examined on the PhD. Um, doing the two things at the same time. I was taking footnotes right. out of the book and putting jokes in and taking jokes out of the PhD and putting footnotes <laughs> in. Um, and it, it grabbed the, the previous book that I'd written, which again had a clickbaity title, um, If You Meet George Herbert on the Road, Kill Him, which was a sort of a, a, an attempt to try and analyze what the problems were with the roots of um, a return to the roots of, of, of English parochial ministry. Yeah, um, that's real clickbait for Anglicans. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and there there are loads of people who have refused to uh, to read that book just because of the title alone. I know. Um, so yeah, great. Um, uh, more full then. And um, one of the things that came out from that was thinking that you know, what we need to what we need to do is that clergy need to get regain a confidence in their um, their ministry and in, in their calling. And at that time, I thought it was leadership. Then I realized, with a capital F, and then I realized looking. So at, you thought that was the answer? I thought that was the answer. Yeah. We okay. needed we okay. needed to be okay. Okay, we need this thing called leadership. What is this thing called leadership? Uh, and then roughly about that time, a um, RAF reconnaissance plane crashed in Afghanistan and killed uh, all fourteen crew on board. And there was a rev- there was a, a review of what happened. Uh, an accident investigation. And the conclusion of the accident investigation was that the, the plane crashed because of a lack of leadership. Um, it was over and over again in all the, uh, the, the um, inquiry that they made was that they said that um, all warning signs and train, trends about the maintenance of the aircraft weren't handled properly and we need to improve leadership. And I thought, hang on, don't we need to improve maintenance and engineering and right. you know the way the plane is flown rather than leadership but no leadership was the solution first so i began to think about okay so how is leadership used it's the universal solution and once you start looking out for it you find that there, there isn't a sphere of human endeavor we're not talking about the church now every human endeavor in which leadership is the solution for it so um you know, in economics or in politics or in international relations or in sport. I mean, you get it all the time in sport. You know, we, we, you know he showed real leadership. And I even found that there was a, um, a catering conference that was held in Scottsdale, Arizona in 2010, which was the uh, Catering Leadership Conference. So you have to be a leader in, in catering <laughs> now. So I thought, okay, I want, to, um, I want to find out more about this. And I came across a guy called Keith Grint who teaches um, – management at a, uh, a technical university in the UK. And uh, he said that um, in 
December 2000, between October and December 2008, which is the time I was beginning to think about this, there were 3,000 references to leadership or its lack in the British press alone. So wow. in just three months, 3,000 mentions of it as well. So, so then I came across a guy called Andrew Dubrin, who had written a book on uh, leadership, research, research findings, practice, and skills. And this sounded like the thing that I was wanting from the Kill George yeah. book. Um, and the third edition, which came out in 2000, the year 2000, uh, in his preface, he said, there are 35,000 different definitions of leadership. I have no idea how he counted them. 35,000. That was the year 2000. Um, in 2010, when the sixth edition came out, he had given up counting and he had said, a Google search of articles and books about leadership in organizations indicates 188 million articles. In all those entries, leadership is properly defined in many different ways. Okay, so Andrew Dubrin, who makes a living out of selling the idea of leadership and the practice of it, isn't able to define it. Ralph Stogdill, who wrote, wrote something called A Handbook of Leadership, says there are almost as many different definitions of leadership as there are persons who have attempted to define the concept. So this was beginning to irritate me. So I thought, I'm gonna, I need some focus for this, so I'll, I'll start a PhD. Um, and I was very fortunate. I, had a, uh, I found a supervisor who was, was a theologian but was a cultural theologian and was able to sort of integrate me into the business school of the local university. So I was able oh, to do okay. this work with the business school. So I went through the business literature. Um, and, you know, here are some definitions of leadership. The process, the act, of influencing the activities of an organized group in its efforts towards goal setting and goal achievement. Or the behavior of an individual when he is directing the activities of a group towards a shared goal. Or the accomplishment of a goal through the direction of human assistance. A leader is one who successfully marshals his human collaborators to achieve particular ends. Or the process of influence between a leader and those who are followers. Or the art of mobilizing others who want to struggle for shared aspirations. And then I came across two much more realistic definitions. One from Rowan Williams. Archbishop of Canterbury then, people wanting to be told they're right. And I thought, that's a good definition of leadership. And then uh, Heifetz and Linsky wrote this brilliant book for, um, I think it's for Harvard, which said, leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. And I thought, <laughs> okay, I like that. That's, um, that's uh, realistic. So Stogdill, after doing this survey of what leadership is, he said, um, four decades of research on leadership have produced a bewildering mass of findings. It's difficult to know what, if anything, has been convincingly demonstrated by replicated research. The endless accumulation of empirical data has not produced an integrated understanding of leadership. But still, it's a good thing. And the reason why it's a good thing is we can sell leadership courses to anxious people who feel that this is the thing that's going to give them the edge over their um, business competitors. Um, yeah, everybody needs it. Have you got it? Let me sell it to you. And not so only that's are, a pretty cynical oh, conclusion. Well, well, like you, it's, we don't know what it is, but it's good to sell it. We don't know what it is, but we're going to sell it to you, um, and it will make all the difference to your business because you know we live in a. We live in a cutthroat capitalist environment. I mean, 75% of companies that are on the, um, the London Stock Exchange, uh, the, the top list, that won't exist in 25 years' time. So, you know, 
if if you you want your company to exist, you're going to have to have an edge, and the edge is now we've been told is leadership. So there's no agreed definition of leadership, but again, further on from that, in a meta way, there's no agreed typology of all the different definitions of leadership. So people will say, oh, well, you know, there's this family of leadership definitions and there's this family of leadership and there's nobody agrees on that either because it, it is just so nebulous. Um, right. So, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, so if the church is saying what we need is leadership, what exactly is it that the church is saying? Is it something that's inherent? Is it something that is a skill that can be learned? Is it a technique that can be applied? Is it something that is to do with the individual? Is it something that manifests itself in, in a group of people? It changes all the time. It used to be that leadership was something that was inherent in the individual until, get this, the Second World War, when all of a sudden you needed to train a lot of ordinary men, usually men, to be officers in the military. So then you needed ordinary people who perhaps inherently weren't great leaders to actually exercise leadership skills. So then leadership could be something that could be taught. Right. But then it keeps okay. on changing. It keeps on changing. So in the end, I decided that the only way to understand leadership is to say that leadership is pornography. It, or rather, leadership is like pornography. So okay. Justice Stewart, who was on the uh, American Supreme Court, very famously um, had an obscenity case uh, come before the Supreme Court. And in order to define whether something was obscene, you had to define whether it was pornography. And he said, you know, pornography, you know it when you see it. Right. Okay. That's so how leadership is That's like how leadership is like pornography. Yeah. And but also you know, leadership sells glossy magazines. Um <laughs> yeah. and pornography does yeah. the same thing as well. Um so you know, leadership is um leadership is like uh pornography. You know it when you see it. The advantage of leadership is that it is sexier and more glamorous than the real boring humdrum requirements of management. So leadership is management on steroids. Um, we, in the 20th century, we have developed CIOs, complex industrial organizations, which is what you know, okay. the, the management um, gurus yeah, talk about it. And complex industrial organizations require an awful lot of managing different resources, um, you know, if you've got 25,000 people who are working for you, you're going to have to have some degree of skill to be able right. to, uh, to set out what everybody's going to do. And management is the requirement of that. But the problem is, is that management has become extremely unglamorous. It's not heroic at all. Mm -hmm. um, so to begin with, we had managerial leadership, which was basically the allocation of resources and the management of scarcity. Um, and that happened over the, the um, most of the 20th century. Uh, and this is and are we talking about the church? Or we're oh, gosh, no, no, we're not, not talking about okay. the church at all yet. This is because okay. because what happens is we're the church, still... yeah, the, the, the church is Johnny come lately um, when, when yeah. it comes to this thing. Uh, so this is this is in complex industrial organizations. So you have um, you know Taylor who who was the guy who who did um, efficiency studies, um, and then you had Tom Peters who's, who talked about how you do excellence, uh, and the 
managerial manage, management morphed itself into managerialism which is a an ideology that there is no endeavor within human society that cannot be improved by applying the principles of management so this is why you have managers people who have got mbas who come in to manage hospitals who come in to manage right. schools who come in to manage um uh you know the army um that so Michael Heseltine, who was a cabinet minister under Margaret Thatcher, he said that efficient management is the key to revival. If Britain's managers fail, we can turn out the lights. And this idea that managers have the right to manage, and manage, right. management is a universal, politically and morally neutral skill. Um, now, Alistair McIntyre, the philosopher, cut the ground out from underneath that um, idea 40, 45 years ago. Um, and he, he said that, yeah, that the, so the moral neutrality of management and managerialism is one of the central moral fictions of our age, that you know, hmm. it really doesn't apply. You know, when Mussolini made the trains run on time, and he didn't, that's a myth, but when Mussolini made the trains run on time, that wasn't a morally neutral action. It required a, right. a, a degree of coercion. Um, so um, McIntyre said, this is a great thing, is that the, 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 um, the whole concept of effectiveness is inseparable from a mode of human existence in which the contrivance of means is in central part the manipulation of human beings into compliant patterns of behavior. And it is by appeal to his own effectiveness that the manager claims authority within the manipulative mode. And if you want to know what that looks like, he uses the analogy of a priest 500 years ago praying for rain, and when it happens to rain, claiming the credit for it uh, right, as well. Okay. So that's managerial leadership, um, and but it's not very glamorous. And then in right. the the eight the seventies and the eighties, there began to develop a, another form of leadership, um, which um, is basically what I what I christened mythological leadership and okay. uh, the best example of that and this is where we get into the church because finally the church begins to catch up is that we had a a report that was written um when george Carey was archbishop of canterbury about restructuring the the central um the central organization of the church of england the, the, the central institutions um and it was written by uh, the 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 committee was chaired by the Bishop of Rochester, chap by the name of um, Michael Turnbull. Um, and he said in his preface to the report, question never far from the mind of a church leader is, how can I break out of institutional shackles and be the true, adventurous, uninhibited leader that I want to be? Which, okay. when I read that, made me think of Aragorn and in The Return of the King, yeah. Leading, you know, doing his famous speech about, you know, there will become a day of wolves and broken swords, but it is not this day. Men of the West, you know, this day we fight. And this kind of sort of, you know, here I am on my charger with my sword leaping into the um uh into the unknown and into uh adventurousness. And the Church of England, um, under George Carey in the 1990s, and then increasingly with uh uh, Michael Turnbull and Turnbull's report thought itself that the only way that we were going to face the challenges of modernity and secularism was to 
imitate the the way in which complex industrial organizations had previously organized themselves through management and managerialism. But they bought into not just plain old straightforward tailorism or excellency or anything else like that, but this idea that you could be somehow, you could be a mythological character. You could be the true adventurous hero um, that, that you're required to be. So this is where you end up with what I call Jesus MBA, you know, but you know, yeah, really yeah. Jesus's problem was that he didn't have an MBA. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Rowan Williams, who sort of presided over this, um, as Archbishop of Canterbury, you know, like King Canute, unable to keep the waves from coming in, he, he recognized the, the drawbacks of it. He said, um, "Leadership, the leadership thing is one of the problems here. I said this in 2009. I've sometimes said when people say we want you to, to give a lead, what they mean is we want you to tell them, not us. We don't want to be led. So within the church, leadership is something that happens to other people. Okay. You see this, the way that leadership in schools in the UK um, had become something. I was uh, a parish priest in which we had a Church of England school. The marvelous things about having the established church is that, you know, that the state schools are affiliated to the established church. And the, their mission, sta mission statement was to create leaders. And I thought, right. what, all 1,200 of them? You know, yeah. If, if, if we've got twelve hundred leaders, who can be the followers? Because nobody is ever, ever actually saying, you know, what we're going to do is that we're going to uh, to create followers. Um, but leaders require followers; otherwise, you end up with the um, uh, the pastiche, the uh, the satire of of the life of Brian, where you have the People's Front of Judea, who consists of one single solitary person, mm -hmm. and the. I mean, that's where the title of, of You Are the Messiah comes from, is, is a line from the life of Brian. You are the Messiah, and I should know, after all, I've followed a few. Um, right. <laughs> you know, the life of Brian nailed this sort of, this political incoherence about him. So up to that point, I was thinking, okay, we don't know what leadership is, but we do think it is the universal panacea. It's hard to see how managerial leadership applies to the church, because the church isn't a complex industrial organization. It's an institution. It's something mm -hmm. that's relational. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, if your li listeners want to find out some more about this, a really good um, person to read is uh, a priest in, um, uh, Episcopal priest in the Diocese of Colorado called Lyndon Shakespeare, who's written a brilliant book about being the body of Christ in a time of management. Um, okay. You know, he talks about the difference between being an organization and being an institution and why being an institution is a really important thing. So, But we don't know how these techniques actually work within the church. But I'm, I was slightly concerned about the language that was being used um, for this, you know, true adventurous leader. Um, yeah. And that's when I began to think about, well, where are the ideas coming from? Uh, for this kind of language. And, and it was the Aragorn Men of the West speech that made me think, hang on a second, that sounds like a description of a movie character. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. And then I want to kind of circle back to 
cool. why this is a problem. Okay. Um, specifically in the life of the church. But yeah, let's talk. I mean, you can tell from your book, I think, that you're a bit of a movie buff and uh, and that you have a pretty um, good handle on Hollywood and uh, the the stories that have come out of Hollywood over the last couple of decades. So where do you see that influence from Hollywood on this idea of mythological leadership and and also like in Christian leadership? So American movies are the the universal hermeneutic for understanding our experience in the world today. Period. And if you doubt me, just look at the next time that there's a news report of something horrific that's happened, a hurricane, or a fire, or an explosion, or, yeah, as was reported in the British press today, two reindeer broke out from a Christmas winter park and were running down a major highway. Everybody will always say it was just like a movie. So we right. make sense of our experiences by relating it back to what we have seen. And the dominant uh, cultural expression of movies is, is American and has mm -hmm. been since about uh, 1930. So um, we recognize reality in as much as it is reflected in and formed by American films. Um, so then you have to think about, okay, what's the American culture? Um, that's going on here. And there are two academics called Lawrence and Jewett who wrote this brilliant book uh, about the American monomyth, which, as they call it, which is the myth of redemptive violence. Right. There is no problem that cannot be solved by somebody coming in and exercising judicious violence to eliminate the problem. I mean, my, um, my chaplain at university uh, advised me, said, you know, when you get into parish ministry, don't worry, there's no problem in the parish ministry that can't be solved by a good funeral. Um, but what Lawrence and Dewitt are saying is that you don't have to wait for the person to die, you can do it yourself. And right. once, once you see that, <clears throat> once you see that as a, as a structure, um, it happens over and over and over again in films, uh, that you have, a stranger who comes from outside to a community that is facing an existential threat. The community are unable to rescue themselves from that existential threat. So the stranger who comes out from outside and there is an air of mystery about him um, is reluctant to get involved with the life of the community as well because then, then he wouldn't be the stranger from the outside. But eventually, when... A threat happens that is acute enough, usually a little child is, is hurt, then the stranger will unleash all the violent skills that he has and will rescue the community by killing all the bad guys, mm -hmm. which is basically the plot of shame. But it's also the plot of gross point blank. And, you know, right. the number of times that if, if you watch you know, a, an American film from the 50s, onwards, even today, is what will happen is that violence will solve the problem. Um, you know, the best ever Christmas movie ever made, Die Hard. What's involved in that? <laughs> you know, it, it's Bruce Willis, I'm getting a bloody uh, singlet, um, ultimate violence. And yeah. so Lawrence and Dewitt, um, uh, you know, their analysis is, you know, the, the, the foundational myth of, of America is... Um, 
is the individual exercising violence for good of society. Um, and that ties in with a culture within, within American business. Um, there's a, uh, oh, wow, what's it called? Um, there's a particular fashion in American um, uh, business management. In, in, it came out in the 1990s, it's called um, Business Process uh, Reengineering which sounds like a really, really boring um, name. But the, all the people who advocated BPR, um, because you always have to turn it into a three-letter acronym in order to be able to trademark it and sell it. But everybody who advocated BPR um, advocated violence as part of uh, their business process. So, you know, we shoot dissenters. You know, people need the, uh, the back of a hand, um, you, you know, uh, board meetings are conducted by machine gun. And you, know, you look at even TV series today, look at Succession. Um, you know, it, it is all part of this underlying myth of violence. The problem, sure, is, sure. the problem is, is that, you know, if exercising leadership like Shane is about the implicit use of violence, what the hell has that got to do with Jesus Christ? Yeah, yeah. So, like, where do we see this coming into church ministry? So, what happens is that uh, is that um, you will have people who will have their vision, and who will not broke dissent. Um, yeah. So that that you know that I mean, within the polity of the Church of England, is that bishops will have a vision for how the diocese should go. Everybody has to have a mission or strap line. They're usually three gerunds, you know, learning, living, lo loving, um, uh, going deeper, going harder for, for Jesus, all this kind of stuff, you know. You know, Lord save us from bishops who've got a graphic design budget. Um, but what that means is repudiating what has happened before. This is part of business process reengineering. Every situation is year zero. You can't learn from what has happened before. You have to Im impose it, and that there is no dissent. Now, so I wrote this. I was doing the, this research in 2008. It became a PhD. It was presented for examination in 2012. This is over 10 years old. Nobody in the Church of England was interested in it at all. But um, there's a new book out yeah. by Alison Milbank, The Once and Future I Parish. did want to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is the first book in which I have been quoted approvingly for, for, for <laughs> this work. So I think she's great. Um, but what <laughs> Alison sure. Milbank is, is doing is in analyzing the way in which the polity of the Church of England has been changed in the last 10 years um, to circumvent the, the independence of individual ecclesial communities in England mm -hmm, parishes mm -hmm. for the greater good of a vision and a strategy, capital V, capital S, that has been imposed from above by people who are coming in from the outside. And she'll, she goes through in certain dioceses where there is no dissent is brooked and people are excluded from it. Now, I went to the, the book launch for this and, uh, Alison Milbank was introduced by a, um, I was going to say he's a famous priest, but you know, famous for the Church of England, which is you know, a given definition of fame, a chap by the name of Giles Fraser. Yes, and, Giles and, Fraser. Yeah, you've heard of him. 
Yep, yeah, okay. yep. His articles get circulated. Okay, a lot so over I here. mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I take Giles really seriously because he was the year below me at theological college. So yeah, um, but Giles was saying, you know, he doesn't understand why people collaborate with dioceses when diocesan administrations send out the latest watch of required managerial administrative returns. You know, predicated upon the model that. Diocese is his head office, and the parishes are the local franchise businesses. Mm-hmm. And he said, mm-hmm. I just don't. I don't do that at all. I, d- I don't cooperate. And I pointed out to him, but if you don't do that, then the support of the diocese is turned off. You don't get the curates. You, you don't get new staff. You don't get um, the financial support. And more and more and more, money that had been Part of the endowment of the Church of England for the running of the parishes is being separated out for specific projects that dioceses and parishes can bid for. So we have the strategic, yeah. I keep on thinking it's the dis- strategic defense fund, but it's not that, it's F- SDF, and I don't know what it means, which is being re- replaced by something else called SMIBD, um, which is basically we have decided this is the kind of thing that we're going to fund. Dioceses have to bid for it, which then, once you do that, you introduce this whole layer of, of managerialism mm-hmm. because you mm-hmm. have to have people who are writing bid proposals and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, for sure. And, and if you don't subscribe to the shibboleth of leadership, 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 if you aren't going to put yourself in the heroic role that Michael Turnbull described 15 years ago, then you're not going to get that support. I used to think, along with John Keeble, that if the Church of England ceased to exist tomorrow, it would continue in my parish. I am uncertain now whether the resources of the parish have been allowed to remain intact enough for that to happen. Yeah, And that's my yeah, problem about it. Yeah. Okay, so I, I just want to pick up on a few threads that you've mm. said here and uh, and ask her a few follow-up questions. Mm. So first of all, I just want to say that um, I hear reports from different denominations across North America and certainly across the Anglican Church of Canada of that same kind of dynamic yeah. that you're identifying, um, that uh, there's there's a tighter and tighter control over the narrative. Dissenting voices um, get their heads chopped off mm-hmm. and uh, put on the city walls as a warning to trespassers. Sometimes um, metaphorically, usually literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hopefully not too literally. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I think like the dynamic that you're um, identifying is by no means just a Church of England uh, dynamic. Mm. And, you know, I think leaders across uh, the Western church are sort of wrestling with um, with this increasing centralization mm-hmm. of, uh, of denominational structures and, and where do we go for um, honest, critical conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm hearing sort of a few problems with this uh, leadership model as we use it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hear you name the incoherence Mm -hmm. of using language that we don't really understand. I hear you naming 
um, kind of that violence of of controlling who gets to speak mm-hmm. and what they get to say. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to whether you also identify a violence that gets done to the the leaders themselves in sort of trying to be this mythological um this mythological figure yeah and this savior of a declining church like yeah. where does that part of the violence kind of fit in yeah uh, <laughs> i mean the interesting thing is is that i don't think that there are any mustache twirling villains in the church of england um <laughs> Yeah, I don't think there are any. I don't think anybody in the Church of England, in any position of power or responsibility, wakes up and thinks, "What evil can I wreck upon uh, the church today?" I mean, occasionally, Alison Milbank, um, her rhetoric is, which I'm happy to cheer. Um, I think sort of exceeds the evidence when she starts talking about things being satanic. Um, Yeah, I think that's a really fair disclaimer. I appreciate you saying Uh, that. but I think what happens is that, that, that it's a function of fearfulness. Um, I agree. Yeah. And that people have been put into a position of great change without any real grounding in the history of the church. And they feel that they are um, responsible solely for mm-hmm. not just saving the church, but fixing it. Um, yeah. So, you know, Stanley Howas talks about how uh, Christians today are functionally, um, they don't believe in the Holy Spirit. I think the challenge um, within the Church of England is that our bishops are functionally atheist. They, and that's, that's not true, functionally, functionally Marxist, um, okay. in that they believe that if you can get the economic relationships right, then everything else will fall into place. And that, um, that if we just get the sort of, you know, the transactional relationships sorted out, then we will be, um, gathered into the new Elysium and, you know, sunlit up ones and everything else like that, which has very, very little for God to do. So, uh, about 10 years ago, there was an announcement of a huge new, um, uh, program in which we were going to, um, Increase the number of uh, vocations to to the ministry, and we were going to have ten thousand new vocations a year. And I looked at it, I thought, "Where's the Holy Spirit functioning in that?" You know, yeah. what we're going to do is that we're going to set the Holy Spirit a a quota um, and see what the Holy Spirit comes up with. Yeah, so, just put in your takeout order for the Holy exactly, Spirit. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, do you do um, Uber delivery? Um, <laughs> and I think I think I think the terrible thing about that is that you know you get people who are desperate to have, to get themselves into positions of power, power, positions of influence, and they want to get their hands on the lever, levers of power. And when they get there, they realize that those levers of power aren't actually connected to anything. I mean, there was a very good description of Gordon Brown, who was the prime minister after Tony Blair, the last. Um, Labour um, Prime Minister, who had been Chancellor of the Exchequer for many, many years and wanted to be Prime Minister. And when he got to be Prime Minister, everything fell apart. We had the, the major financial crisis. And there was this, this rather compassionate but damning description of him you know, being in, in, in 
10 Downing Street with his hands on the levers of power and then not being connected to anything. And I think that the problem is, is that because the church has lost confidence in it herself as an institution to raise up its, its own ministers, mm-hmm. the individual people who are raised up as you know, overseers um, within that don't have the confidence in um, the ability of the church to do that, which is why we're constantly looking to outside structures. So let's, rather than having a prayerful person as the Archbishop of Canterbury, let's have an oil executive as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Rather than having somebody who has been formed entirely within the Church of England, let's have the chief nurse for the National Health Service as the Bishop of London. Um, And over and over again, you'll see people who are now bishops within the Church of England who have had long and distinguished careers outside of the church, because we don't have the confidence that the church can actually form its own leaders as well. Well, and and that probably is very much connected to the the question that we're asking about what the church needs to be, mm. um, which is it needs to survive, right? Like that that's question mm. around survival becomes like sort of central, which is a very fear-based question. And and I I think that's right. I think that um because the survival feels like it's compromised or in question, then we sort of abandon the the um the markers of the trade, so to speak, yeah. and and look outside. If you like, think what's going to help us survive. Yeah. If you think that the major responsibility of the church is to survive you will do everything that you can to make it survive, and by doing so, you will kill it. The responsibility of the church is not to survive. The responsibility of the church is to be the body of Christ in this world. And that might involve us actually dying. Now, speaking as a priest of the Church of England, it's quite hard to imagine that because we've been worshipping God with a faint air of superiority since 597. But it (laughs) might well be that the, the, the function of the church, the Church of England, is to die in this time and place. Movie analogy. You know what? Uh, you ever seen the film Contact uh, with Jodie Foster and yeah, Matthew Tommy? Yeah, yeah, I did so see that. It's about you know building a. We we receive instructions from aliens about how to build a machine that can travel through time and space, and Jodie gets to be the first astronaut to go in it, and she notices that um, the, the the astronaut's capsule contains a chair in which he is going to be strapped in which wasn't in the aliens instructions and they and nasa say well we we don't know what you're going to go through so we want you to be safe so she goes down these wormholes and it's the most excruciating experience and she is being shaken almost to death uh, by this and she can't hold on to this any longer until she realizes that the crucifix that matthew mcconaughey had given her as a gift because he's the he was the fighting young pastor who made a difference, um, mm-hmm. was floating from round her neck and was completely still in the space of the cap- capsule. So she undoes her safety harness and she finds herself that she is no longer being shaken. It was the chair that was to keep her safe that was killing her. And mm-hmm. quite often I think that, that, um, that in the church we try and decide what it is that we have to do in order to keep the church as a human institution going, rather than thinking, what is it that God is doing and that we have to get out of the way of? Um, So, you know, the effect upon the leaders is, as long as they think it's their responsibility to to keep the church alive, uh, 
then everything that they do is actually going to end up harming uh, the church. Well, and I have to say, like, I have just a ton of compassion for how easy it is to get caught up in that Messiah complex, Mm. like how easy it is to think that the responsibility lies solely on our shoulders, whether it's because of our own ego or because it's how we're influenced by this cultural mythology or what have you, or whether it's just because, you know, we love the church that we have and we want to see it keep going and, you know, like... um. And our own sort of desire gets caught up in um, our fear and and our uh, our sense of like this this all rests on me to fix it or save yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I have lots of compassion for that, but I do think we also have to really push back against it and yeah. um, and and be clear about who we are and. Uh, and where we find our center. So, just one more question mm-hmm. before we go to our final rapid fire questions. But if you were, you know, going to offer one antidote to this, uh, this kind of obsession around mythological or even managerial leadership, like what do you think we need to come back to? Um, I think we need to. Come back to Christ. Just come back to Jesus. You know, um, but you know that's the standard response every time. Every time a vicar asks a, a question in church, the answer is Jesus. Um, yeah, because of the answer is always Jesus. Um, but if you want to see an example of how that works out in the complexities of the 20th century, then look at the life and witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, yeah. because Bonhoeffer. Um, Alison Milbank doesn't give him a good time because she thinks that Bonhoeffer was, was responsible for religionless Christianity, um, which I, I don't think that um, I don't think Bonhoeffer was um, for that. But you look at Bonhoeffer, you know that the, the idea of the heroic leader was right there at the heart of uh, of German culture from mm-hmm. the mid nineteenth century onwards. Um, you know, interesting side question. Why don't they have leadership studies in Germany? Because do you know what the German word for leader is? Führer. There you go. It's really hard to yeah. have leadership studies when when the model of leadership is the Führer. Um, oh, my but gosh. Hitler wasn't the first Führer. There were people who were constantly looking for the Führer, um, yeah. like you know, the English look for King Arthur. And Bonhoeffer would have been the perfect candidate for it. I mean, he was tall, mm-hmm. he was good looking, he was blonde, he was uh, charismatic, he was uh, musical, he played Bach like Bach. Um, he was a fantastic tennis player. Um, he mm-hmm. was really good company and he was morally scrupulous. Um, and he refused to take on the role that, um, that people that he could have easily taken on. That he, yeah. You know, to, yeah. To, to go back to the Lord of the Rings metaphor, he refused to take the one ring. He was basically Faramir and not Boromir. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that led him to um, Tegel Prison and that led him to, um, to execution in, in Flossenburg. So, mm-hmm. you know, Bonhoeffer's way of refusing to be a leader whilst remaining faithful to being a disciple of Christ. That's a really good example. And the way that we do that, and this is the story I always really like, is that when Bonhoeffer was um, invited by the Confessing Church to set up his 
illegal seminary in Finkenwalder. He thought, I better find out how we, we're going to run this seminary. Seminarians need to learn to worship. So he came back to England where he had been a, a minister in the a German language Lutheran church. And he did a tour of the Anglican um, theological colleges to find out what forms of worship that he used. And he decided that the best form of worship for seminarians in the face of Nazi oppression was Evensong. Book of Common uh -huh. Prayer, 1662, Evensong. Immerse uh -huh. people in the scriptures, immerse people in the story of, you know, of God's work amongst his people in the world. And so, you know, the, the seminarians of Finkenfelder had Bonhoeffer's adaptation of BCP Evensong. In other words, mm -hmm. go back to what I was saying right at the beginning is say your bloody prayers. Um, yeah. uh, you know, al allow yourself to be changed by God so then that you can be part of what God is doing in changing the world around outside. And it's not going to involve snazzy graphic designs. It's not going to involve wonderful new initiatives. It's just going to be this, I mean, the right old, good old religion, as you know, Nicholas Farrer described it, is, is the idea of a rule of life and living as a rule of life and being able to be recognized as somebody who lives under a rule of life. It's really unglamorous. Well, and what I love about that even song example and then your words about the office at the beginning of our podcast is it's not just prayer, it's collective prayer. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's prayer with the body of Christ. Common and prayer. I think that that is such a such an antidote to um to the the sense of having the whole thing resting on our shoulders alone. So, yeah, thank you. We are going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll have our closing rapid fire questions. Welcome back to our future Christian podcast conversation today. We're going to wrap up with some closing questions. These are pretty rapid fire, Justin, and we always sure. tell people that they can take them as seriously or not as, okay. as they want. Okay. Right. So, Justin, if you were Pope for a day, what would that day look like? What would be top of the agenda? I'd resign. If well, that's I had, no if, fun. No, if I if I had been made pope, it, it it would be a serious error of judgment of you know the people of God and perhaps the Holy Spirit as well. I think probably the safest thing for all concerned, especially my immortal soul, would be to resign. I I I recognise my propensity to love. I had a I had a mentor who uh, his last job in the Church of England was to train. Um, clergy for uh cathedral ministry and he said the one thing that he wanted to get over to them was just because you work in a big and important building doesn't mean you're a big and important person right and he said that he was never ever able to get that message over to people and i recognize you know the propensity that i have of being tempted to thinking that i'm big and important so if i was going to be pope i'd resign because they have okay. no hope for it okay so the holy yeah. spirit got it wrong and yep, yep. Uh, you're you're putting in your notice. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. 
we haven't had that answer before, so thank oh, you. Good. Well, that shows how special I am. But. <laughs> Very special, yeah. <laughs> Big and important and special. Yes. <laughs> what theologian or historical Christian figure would you want to meet or bring back to life or, you know, have supper with? Oh, Bede. Bede? Definitely okay. Bede. Definitely Bede. I mean, Bede, who life and you, the things that he saw right from being a child and the imaginative universe that he had, um, because everybody thinks of Bede as just being the person who wrote the uh, history of the English people and you know, his biblical commentaries and his scientific work and um, the fact that he was doing it in uh, Monk Weirmouth and Jarrow, so far away from anywhere important as well. And the fact that he's the father of English history. So I definitely want to uh, uh, to meet with Bede. Okay. What will history remember from our current time and place? Uh, history will look back at, at the early part of the uh, 21st century and think, how could they be both so sentimental and so superstitious at the same time? I think people will recognize us as being, you know, sentimentally superstitious. Hashtag be kind. Um, I think, you know, that sums that up as well. Um, I think that, you know, the rise of <laughs> the rise of sort of moral policing uh, that is tied up with um, under a pretense of being just lovely and soft and fluffy to everybody mm -hmm. is going to be something I, I think we're we're sort of we're, we're going to be lumped in with the 1860s and you know that kind of uh, Victorianness as well I think we'll be seen as being sentimentally superstitious sentimentally superstitious okay good yeah what are your hopes for the future of Christianity I feel like you've touched on this already but uh anything else you want to articulate about that yeah the oh. book of revelation the book of revelation um uh evening prayer in the church of england at the moment for advent is we're working our way through um book of revelation and uh, last night uh we had the whole of revelation 19 uh as the, the uh, second reading at even song and it was all about you know uh, killing the beast and um, the birds of mid heaven coming down and feasting on the flesh of kings and of princes and of captains and of death and gore and everything else like that. And right at the end of it, it was just me and my colleague there. And I said, all those in favor of this being an accurate record of our PCC meeting, say I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of cool. But when you set that aside and you look at the end of Revelation and New Jerusalem coming down as a bride adorned for mm -hmm. her husband. Um, and my chaplain at university said that, you know, Christianity has a holy book which begins in a garden and ends in a city. I know. I know. It and wasn't all a mistake. Like It wasn't all a mistake. So yeah. the hope of Christianity is that, you know, we've, we've been through worse. It might be hard to believe that, but we've been through worse and we're still here. And the faithful remnant is still the faithful remnant. And the hope of Christianity is the bride adorned for her husband. Yeah, I I have to say, just like as an aside, my favorite Bible studies that I've had the the opportunity to be part of have been on the Book of Revelation. I mean, just such riches. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay, where can people find more about you? Why would they want to? Uh, oh, because you uh, gave such a brilliant <laughs> podcast interview. Oh, okay. Oh, well, thank you. They're going to be um, clamoring to find you. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't do social media anymore. I gave up blogging a long time ago. Um, I've got uh, free books. Um, uh, if people uh, want to read those, there's, there's a book on um, a painting by uh, Hieronymus Bosch um, called Circle of Thorns. Um, works really, really well as a lead book. Um, it's the book on uh, Kill George. If you meet George Herbert on a road, kill him, which is about Anglican ministry. And then there's You Are the Messiah. Um, and I'm available for weddings, bar mitzvahs, and funerals. So you know, if, you, if, you, if you want me to come and talk to a, a clergy conference, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, okay. my, my new project, I'm working on a new project about um, you know, the latest thing to irritate me is the um, the difference between the misunderstood difference between heroes and saints. And mm. within the Church of England and the Episcopal Church is that we think that saints ought to be heroes, and we don't understand the difference between them. We don't know what saints are or who they uh, or who they're for. So I'm working on that, and that might that might end up being a book. And if it does, it's going to have a clickbait title. You can guarantee okay. that. All right, yeah. look for clickbait, but you're hard to find online. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. I don't exist online, yeah. That sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Justin. We always lead leave people with uh, a word of peace. So the peace of God be with you, Justin. And also with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.